Support for Wabanaki Windows comes from Abbey Museum, founded in 1928 at Sur de Mont Springs in Acadia National Park and celebrating 10 years in downtown Bar Harbor. Two locations with one mission, to inspire new learning about the Wabanaki nations with every visit. More information at abbeymuseum.org. Just a few seconds before the hour of 10 o'clock, this is Community Radio, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill and 99.9 in Bangor. Stay tuned for Wabanaki Windows with your host, Donna Loring. Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Wabanaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. This morning, we'll be talking with Professor Darren Ranko, Chair of Native Programs and Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Maine in Orono. We'll also be talking with John Beer Mitchell, who's a University of Maine uh, Systems Native uh, waiver coordinator and the Wabanaki Center Outreach uh, <coughs> uh, Student Development Coordinator, as well as a lecturer. So, John Bear, you got all kinds of things you're doing. Um, okay, so today we're going to be talking about uh, the changes that have been taking place over the past year, I guess, uh, with the Wabanaki uh, Center and the Native Studies Program. Um, I understand that those have been melded, uh, but before we get to that, I want to talk with our pr professor, Darren Ranko. And uh, Darren, if you could uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and uh, your, your, uh, your education. All right. Thank you, Donna. It's really great to be here. Um, well, I was, uh, I was born and raised right here in Maine. Um, I grew up mostly in Orono. Uh, and I went to Dartmouth College as an undergrad, and uh, then I went on to Harvard uh, University and got my PhD in anthropology in 2000. Also, in the interim, I got a master's degree in environmental law at Vermont Law School in uh, 1998, and I, uh, my first academic job was teaching at the uh, University of California, Berkeley, in, in Native American Studies there. Uh, for a couple of years, and then I taught at Dartmouth College for five and a half years as a, an assistant professor of Native American Studies and Environmental Studies. And um, when I was in California, it was sort of my dream to get back as close to home as possible because I felt like uh, there are only there are only so many things you can do from so far away in terms of benefiting your people um, as a as a member of the Penobscot Nation, uh, growing up close to the community, I felt like I always wanted to get home and be in the position to actually kind of contribute to the, to sort of our public good and our nation building. Um, f so in California, I was always looking to get back. Dartmouth seemed, you know, I was familiar with it as an undergraduate there, and they have a really strong commitment to Native people through both Native American studies there and through the recruitment of Native um, students. But even there, a five-hour drive away was not quite good enough and the opportunity arose um, during uh, the, the year of 2008, 2007-2008 I was um, on leave from Dartmouth and um, came back home, lived just on Stillwater Ave in uh, Old Town and uh, was really trying to see, um, you know, 
finish up some of the research I was doing on a subsistence study and, and really figure out if there was a way to come come back home. And uh, the provost at the time at the University of Maine, Edna Shemansky, um, saw me at a presentation I was giving and said, so why aren't you here uh, back home? Isn't this where you're from? And I just said, oh, I'd love to be here. What are, what are, what are you talking about? And so that, I think, began the discussion and you know, that was sort of tongue in cheek at the time because I, you know, there wasn't a position and she's just like, I understand, you know, she had had some experience in Wisconsin and Minnesota um, where she had seen much more kind of direct collaborations between the universities there and and um, uh, um, Indian nations out, out out there. So she knew that what was happening at the University of Maine wasn't that kind of deep collaboration. There's a strong commitment to through the tuition waiver program and, and other things to uh, some student development, but there wasn't that sort of institutional kind of commitments that you can get with tribal governments and tribal nations. So we sat down, had an hour and a half long meeting, and I just told her, you know, these are the kinds of things that I would do if I were you, um, have a person do X, Y, and Z. One of the key things is building sort of collaborative research partnerships thinking about Native people as their own scholars, thinking about it in a more sovereign, nation-building kind of way as education. Um, and of course, you know, ret you know, after the fact, I realized I was writing my own job description with her um, because she was able to kind of come up with a position that would um, serve some of those purposes. So, you know, coming full circle, it's, it's definitely an awesome... Uh, thing to be back home and, and to be working in a university and trying to build those commitments, those structural kind of partnerships between the university and um, our our tribal nations here in the state. But uh, it's really uh, also a great challenge. Uh, so I think uh, <laughs> I'm happy to be back here. And um, it's now been uh, over two and a half years. I started in January of 09. And um, yeah, one of the first responsibilities I had was, you know, looking at, and this is sort of a segue into the next the next topic, one of the key things that I was tasked with was to be chair of a committee um, to look at both Native American studies and the Wabanaki Center, which had developed over time in very different directions, both of which um, were good directions, uh, but maybe we could think about them more together and in a more collaborative, synergistic way for the university and sort of so I was the chair of a committee um, to, to sort of rethink those um, interactions between Wabanaki Center, which has this history of sort of student development and outreach with the tribes and Native American studies, which is this academic, you know, uh, scholarly kind of side of things. And um, we, we came up with a plan, which we're now, I don't know, 80% implemented in terms of re bringing everyone together and bringing a different sort of focus to Native American programs. John Bear, if you can just uh, tell us a little bit about you know yourself and uh, how long you've been with uh, the Webinaki Center. Yeah, uh, thank you, Donna. A little bit about myself. I guess what what my experience has been based on way back uh, when I got out of high school was a cultural building um, method. I think within the communities, and we didn't have any cultural programs back then, so they had this organization called the um, Penobscot Cultural Center, which was based in the old tribal school. And from that, I got an interest, really, in uh, storytelling. 
and history of the Wabanaki people. So from that, what I did was uh, I was working in a factory as an electrician, and I just kind of felt like that wasn't where I wanted to end up dying. <laughs> and uh, so I, I decided that I would go to college, and I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do. And when I enrolled into college, uh, I went into a liberal arts program, and basically from there found my niche in uh, teaching in elementary education. So I went on for that, and I got my master's degree in leadership and uh, taught at the Indian Island School for a number of years and moved on to the university in 2001, October 2001, actually. And uh, as an interim director there, uh, filling in for the uh, director at that time who was uh, finishing up her PhD out of state. And through that process, I really got interested in looking at how we could develop culturally into a system that is structured like the education system is now in a post-secondary institution. So what I was thinking, I was also invited in to teach at, at about the same time by the director, the former director of Native Studies to teach uh, introdu Introduction to Wabanaki Studies and Contemporary Issues. And I've been teaching that class for about 10 years as well. And uh, it's, been a, it's been a good class. It's got a good, a good uh, number of students in it. But we needed to kind of find our own niche, I think, as far as uh, our own special interests, our, our own, our own uh, difference from any other university as far as how we teach about ourselves. And that was to teach about ourselves by ourselves. And so that um, you're getting history from the people who actually uh, experienced the history or ancestors have experienced the history. So I really wanted to, uh, to take that, that road. But I also, at the same time, am really interested in helping students uh, develop into a graduate level. We've had uh, 300 students at the University of Maine in the last 25 years graduate with a, at least a bachelor's degree. And I'm also uh, given the task of monitoring and, and guiding the program for the UMaine system in the waiver, Native American waiver, which uh, if you qualify under the terms of the UMaine system, it can assist you in your education. And uh, so by this, we, Darren, Professor Renko, and the former director of the Wabanaki Center, uh, Gail Dana, Sacco and I, with a lot of the tribal, tri a tribal appointed a designee by every one of the villages, five tribal villages in the state of Maine, uh, reorganized along with the humane systems folk, uh, the way we would, would serve our population and the way we would focus on our population. So I really wanted to take that and, and see that develop into more, uh, more students coming into the school into the post-secondary institutions, not necessarily humane, but in the system or even in a community college, just to get them in the door, get them looking ahead because there's, n there's nothing out there really that uh, you can do with your, yourself career-wise unless you have at least a bachelor's degree. And my son, oldest son, has taught me a lot about that. And uh, as he's struggled through trying to figure out what he wants to do in his life. So I really wanted to have students develop, support them, not enable them, but support them and give them the tools that they would need in order to go on 
and to uh, become uh, fully independent uh, students and to hopefully get something where they're contributing back to their communities in a way, in, in any way. Uh, even if they're not working for their communities, they can, they can contribute back to them with their knowledge in some way. So <clears throat> the Wabanaki Center began in what year? Do you, do you remember that? The Wabanaki Center actually opened its doors as a center in 1995. 1995? Mm -hmm. The program's been around uh, as it sort of sits in a, in, a, in a way since 1972. But the actual uh, Native program, the Wabanaki Waiver program, started in 1934. And uh, it didn't serve a handful of people from 34 to the 70s because you had to have a really good grip on your high school education and what you wanted to do. And back then, honestly, the university wasn't uh, a necessity for a livelihood. Yeah. Well, it, it just always amazes me that the, you know, we have the, a, uni a university that's yeah, about four miles away from our tribal community, and it's taken so long to get a, a, a center on that university and actually to have some sort of community interaction with it. Um, and, and for so long, they've sort of ig ignored us. And, and I, yeah, I'm not complaining. I am complaining, but I'm, <laughs> I'm saying that it's, it's good that, you know, we're finally there and, and we've finally got some tools to work with here. So, um, Darren, you've, uh, you've taken over, you're leading that um, it used to be the Wabanaki Center. Now they've changed the name of... They haven't. Okay. <laughs> There's still... Um, so we um, prepared uh, that... Com so I was in charge of this committee as of January 2009 uh, to just look at... I mean, it, 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 there's some in my letter of appointment which hired me to the University of Maine that said something about leading this committee to look at... Um, you know, um, a p potential reorganization of Native American studies in the Wabanaki Center. Um, it really didn't give a timeline, but I found, I, I felt that, um, you know, part of the uh, uh, time f that you were talking about that, that it took to kind of establish a center, it's, you know, it, I think it's without a, a presence of Native people uh, in, you know, as faculty or in, in positions of power in the context of the university and that, you know, many of the people fr um, that run the University of Maine or who have really important positions, they're not from Maine, which is good too in, in many regards, um, but they didn't have necessarily that track record. I, I, even things like, you know, I, I grew up in Orono and you asked uh, you know, a professor who's lived in Orono for 30 years where the basin is or where you know, they, they don't even know, they're not familiar with our surroundings. And, you know, after hundreds of years of oppression in the state, um, um, in the way that that silences Native perspectives and people, um, you have to know what to look for to even get it. So in some ways, no, through no fault of their own, these people from away didn't even know what was literally underneath their noses. So I think we will always need to be the people that that bring the, these issues yeah. uh, to the fore and I think it has to do with our um, achievements in terms of education in more recent years um, I do I do want to just jump in yeah here. please um, I, I think that uh, it's important to understand that we have 
uh, two different programs. Uh, one is the web, well, previously we had to do it. One was the Wabanaki Center and the programs that they delivered. And then there was the Native Studies. Mm -hmm. uh, so if maybe it, who would like to speak to that issue? The two different, well, and I, explain them. I, I'll just start out yeah. with it. Um, I w when I was um, an undergrad, I think, in the early 1990s, when I was going back to college for my second career, I guess, I um, got appointed to the uh, task force, which was trying to create the structure, the umbrella. And this is how we, we could explain it the best to ourselves. Ted Mitchell, who was the director at the Wabanaki Center, and also before that, he was uh, associate dean of multicultural student affairs. Uh, he really put in place this uh, this umbrella with along with at the time uh, President Fred Hutchinson, which uh, looked at the umbrella of native programs and what would hang under that umbrella of native programs. What would be the strands that come down from there? And one of the things that we thought, well, definitely at that time in in the early 90s you definitely needed some kind of support for native students who were coming from rural communities and they were coming into this university setting which was really not unlike the rural communities they came from but it just had a different value system different people and different opinions and uh, it, was, it was a scary place so what we wanted to do was uh, get get some uh, support for them give them a place to go so they could see each other. We were not even at the point in time where we were looking at bringing our people's faces into the university system <clears throat> as uh, faces of the, of the communities. We were just trying to get students to come in. Since then, students are coming in naturally now because of the way the uh, education systems are set up and the needs for people in, with educations. So uh, one of the strands underneath that umbrella we, we came up with was Native Studies. And Native Studies was an academic unit. And an academic unit, they, they, they teach classes, they bring in credit hours for the university, i.e. they bring in some, some money. And it was very different than student, what we were doing at that time, which was student support, which is not what we're doing now. But student support services and academic uh, departments lie in different colleges. Uh, College of Liberal Arts and Science houses the, uh, the Native Studies program. And it's a natural uh, place for them to be because it's uh, a lot of uh, professors, doctorates, who uh, are teaching, who are tenured in a, in a place, history or anthropology, whatever it may be, but serving in that realm of Native Studies. And then we had the support services, which was a non-academic unit. So it at the time, it didn't meld. It didn't need to meld. It was just a starting point. And that's how the Board of Trustees en ended up creating the center and a basic philosophy, which has since grown. And I'll let Darren talk a little bit about that. Darren? Yeah, so <clears throat> I think also, I mean, what re what's, um, what's important to keep in mind is how uh, conservative or invested in the meritocracy academic institutions are. So someone who does uh, student support Excuse me, work. wait a minute, wait a minute. 
meritocracy. Well, you want to define that? It's way over my well, head. You, you, you know, you bring in a PhD. Oh, what okay. do you expect? Um, <laughs> but, you know, invested in sort of the credentials that people bring to the table um, okay. and sort of that, that have deep meaning, I think, for good reason. Um, but there's also, I think, so in 1995 when you had Native American programs, you know, if you actually look on an organizational chart and you were to look for... In 1995 and now 2011, you know, Native American programs uh, as being consisted of the Wabanaki Center and Native American Studies, you'll actually see both of them. That, um, in the interim between 1995, and this is just, you know, how I think academic institutions work, and, and John referred to that, is the student, what was considered the student support pieces got lumped into other more, you know, support mechanisms for for student engagement um and native american studies got lumped into and were sort of encouraged to be you know like with the other academic units um two two things happened uh in the interim so those they sort of separated over time we're bringing them back together recognizing that two things have changed um the way student support work is done and sort of the ability of a place like the wabanaki center to do that has changed doesn't mean that we're not engaging students. I think we're actually going to engage them in a more kind of sovereign way in, in, in the end. Um, and in Native American studies as an academic unit, academic units too in terms of the university are, are starting to be rethought in terms of what they can do with outreach and, and benefiting you know more general publics uh, in the state. Um, that has changed. So there's sort of... Um, things that happened in the last 16 years that had to do with the changing structures and sort of what counts in terms of educational units and sort of what the university is invested in. And so benefiting publics in a more direct way is one of the things that the university is very committed to. And I think, um, so bringing these units back together uh, with those changes and with the fact that uh, I think there was always this and, and this was, I think, tried. They tried to address this when the Wabanaki Center and Native American Studies were were created in 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 the '90s. Was that you wouldn't have it sort of like, well, we'll have uh, the Native people. They get to do the little student support things. They're not scholars. They're just you know tutoring. Whereas we'll have you know non-natives as the scholars and the people with the PhDs. They did hire Native people. Um, in terms of the two faculty that are in Native American studies over the year, but they're not Wabanaki. And so through no fault of their own, it still became kind of that tension of the Wabanaki Center was student support, not scholars, you know, not considered sort of part of the academic mission as directly as the scholars of the faculty. And so with my credentials being hired, this clearly made a difference there. And actually, I think it takes pressure off of the our non-Wabanaki native colleagues to, you know, I think they were kind of felt forced into working with Wabanaki peoples or, or not, and I, they did some good work around that, but not being Wabanaki and not having that kind of, within the context of the university, you know, those sets of connections and, and institutional uh, commitments to other, to Wabanaki peoples, that um, uh, kind of continued that separation. So Okay, so my question is, you know, I'm, I'm a native student, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, I, I want to attend the university, and you know I, all I see is well I I remember the Webinaki Center so um, how's that 
Webinac Center gonna gonna uh, assist me in in my efforts to get a degree? What are you gonna do for me? John, no, I'm just kidding. Well, I, no. well, well, first of all, we're going to get you in there. <laughs> yeah, first you talk to John and try to, and he'll help you get in and get, you know, um, well, what, support. Listen, we'll talk about the waiver program in, yep. in a few minutes, but I want to I get this. Uh, well, I think one of the key things, and I think this is um, in, uh, when we all came together in these, you know, I talked about 2009, uh, I was chair of this uh, committee. We brought in, you know, some help, uh, a native person from Wisconsin to help us do some strategic planning. But really it's, you know, the people that are still here at the university, the native people that are native studies in the Wabanaki Center, we um, came with, we came up with this plan, which is um, whereas student support uh, is thought of as like, well, we know a group of students might have some trouble. Maybe they're from a rural area. John mentioned it. it you know, there are programs that are set up um, to help students. But they're imagined, they're set up in, in such a way uh, as to think about the deficits that those students are, have or may bring to our university. Um, we think of it differently now, and that means there's a different structure of engagement. So we think of it not as our students have a deficit. We think of our students actually bring something really important and unique as Native people to this community. And um, we're, we're trying to uh, build on that as the foundation. So the difference between student support and student development is that we have a community that, that values Native, all Native people as scholars, as bringing experience and knowledge to the university community that we want to encourage, enhance, that they can work on as students of the university and not feel like, oh, I have to leave my identity at the door and that I'm, all I'm bringing here is some sort of deficit. They're actually bringing something as scholars, as, as Native people. And so our systems that now, the synergies we see between the Wabanaki Center and Native Studies and Academic Unit is something that is about that kind of sovereign thinking, you know, that they bring something to the table that is uh, so important. So you value the individual that's, that's coming on rather than, you know, be negative about it and, and look at the the uh, deficits and whatever. Yeah, I mean, the messages are really important. As a student, you come there, even if there's a, uh, there's a space and, and to help you, and it'd be like, okay, well, you know, say you come into this community and they're like, okay, well, we have uh, this tutoring program and we have this, uh, if you have problems, you know, we have a counseling service. You know, like, we're much more concerned with building a sense of community of scholars that they're represented, they're coming from their native communities, their community of scholars, they're trying to engage this and really think through, and this is hard to build up out of, um, uh, out of not much at all, a, a kind of intellectual culture for native students where they're thinking about not, I'm just at college for some utilitarian purpose to get a degree and get a better job, but I'm here as a native person um, and I, want to use this education to participate in the nation building for my community or for other Native communities. And I think that's where we see the sort of energy um, in, our, in the new sort of arrangement of Native American studies in the Wabanaki Center. Um, uh, yeah, I'm very worried that people are going to be like, oh, well, the Wabanaki Center is no more, and as a student, I don't get support. And if, and actually, you're going to get a different kind of support. It's going to be much more community-oriented in terms of building this intellectual culture. Not so much like, you know, I feel bad for John because at some point John became the only person who was basically looking after 200 students 
uh, every semester that are involved in our program, he can't possibly mentor, tutor, you know, deal with the particular issues uh, of 200 students, let alone think about it in terms of student development, charting a course for the future. So bringing us all together is a critical part of that and uh, having us all have a role in that sort of development. So when you say bringing us all together, you're talking about the Native Studies piece mm -hmm. uh, and the Wabanaki Center, Yep. Uh, the academic and the support. Now, are they both going to be in the same building? Yep. They are. They will be. So that is a difference. Yes, that's a yeah. difference the way it was. I mean, again, when uh, in 1995, they were, or shortly thereafter, they were in the same building. Um, and and I think it's it's it was it was it was set up though with two different directors who kind of answered to two different parts of the university, and I think that given the more like I said the conservative nature of universities that meant kind of like they would sort of naturally kind of go in those directions. So like a split personality yeah. type of thing. That's so. my analysis of it. I wasn't there. John was more there. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and you know, it just it made sense reporting lines and and, and academic support and space wise, you know, that what would happen is we are currently located and have been since nineteen ninety five in a converted dormitory. So if you ever had experience with that, it's a hallway with doors off to the sides. There's really no common space, no space that's conducive for students just to come in and feel relaxed. When they come into the to the center now in the current location, what they do is they come in and they actually f have to feel like they, if they poke their head in your door from the hall, that, that they're invading your space. We want a space, and Native Studies did this, and, and uh, their space was like this, where you could actually have a central place for community. So students could come in and see each other, and oh, by the way, if you need to talk to one of the people there, professors, support people, whatever, they could just do that. So we need a space that, and, and, and the university is working on this, is to get us a space, and this is, this, you know, educational institutions don't, don't do things quickly, and it just, it wouldn't make any sense because uh, it, would, it would actually get some, you know, quick results. But we have a uh, space that we can, we can get into in, in a year or two that would be conducive to that. But that would give us time. In the, in the interim to set up the program, to get people reacquainted with the program. It's an old program, and mm -hmm. we have a lot of people that have been through this, it. Uh, the space you're talking about that you foresee, um, now that, is that in a different location than you are now? Yeah, we, we've, had, uh, <laughs> we've had meetings this summer about the, the space. It's not settled yet, but it looks like we would um, be in a single space um, by hopefully by next summer. Um, where that is is still a little hazy. Um, uh, a long-term goal is, um, which is more in the four to five year period, is in, even if we go to a single space, say next summer, um, that we might, um, and I know this is a part of some of the plans that we would have a presence as Native American programs in the the um, historic buildings in the center of the UMaine campus that are being um worked on, they have been being worked on for uh, a few years, but that, um, you know, uh, the university really likes our plan in terms of the kinds of synergies. Like I said, we're now, as opposed to being kind of torn apart by the conservative nature of what universities do, I think 
that this plan came from us as the native um, faculty and staff, that it came with this sort of real mi strong mission statement to, to create this sort of more sovereign approach. They, we're on their cutting edge, you know, mm -hmm. as opposed to being torn apart. Right. And so, so I think so they really want to yeah. highlight the fact that we, we don't think of the student and the, the university's public mission um, as totally separate um, projects, that we see them as a single mission um, is something that they want to rally around. And I think that that shows, I think, where, that we're in the right space and the right time to do this kind of work. Okay, so just for, you know, because I'm sort of visual, um, what does that s new structure, you're working on it now, what does that look like? Like if you were looking at an organizational chart, how does that flow? Well, we do have a, you know, radio is always <laughs> such a good medium for visuals. <laughs> um, but we do have a chart. I mean, and our unit is Native American programs. Underneath the unit is, you know, Native American studies, the Wabanaki Center, and something, you know, that we, it's on our original chart. It's called Native Research. Another job that I had when I was hired was be the coordinator of Native American research. That was just in case, um, you know, that job description I was in, inadvertently writing with the former provost. Um, I just, I thought that research um, collaboration between the university and the tribal nations was something that was sorely missing. Um, and I brought that. That's one of the things I specialize in as a scholar is this sort of ethical research relationships between researchers and, and, and tribal nations. Um, so uh, those are the three entities, the Wabanaki Center, Native Research, Native American Studies. And underneath that are three coordinating committees, which um, have are purposefully build. Um, one committee is on curriculum development, so that's about Native studies, but we don't just see our curriculum as our, you know only centered around that. One of them is around um, uh, research, uh, and then the other one is around student development. So each of these areas, um, we imagine these committees reporting to the new chair of Native American programs, which is me. Uh, and very importantly, though, I must add that as opposed to the two directors that managed the Wabanaki Center in Native American Studies and sort of their, they were, those were their permanent positions, we've gone to a rotating chair. So this isn't my job for life, and I don't think it's good to have someone in those kind of leadership positions for life. I think having that as a rotating chair where someone can bring new energies, new thoughts, be more responsive to the changing kind of cultures of the university environment, I think will be really important. Is that going to be a Wabanaki chair? You said you that, is that always going to be held by a Wabanaki uh, tribal member, that chair position? It, it's, only, it's to be held by the faculty and staff of Native American programs, so that includes non-Wabanaki people. Okay, I'm, John. You. <laughs> oh no, I just I'm wanted to. I'm not going to go there, but okay, John. <laughs> I just I, I wanted to um, also add a little bit, kind of aside to what what uh, Darren is talking about, but and, and to clarify, actually, not what he's talking about, but to clarify some of some of the things that I don't think that I described that's really important. The way the structure was set up at the Wabanaki Center and Native Studies was the Wabanaki Center, we just, we, we were a, su a support service and a drop-by place and, and, and whatnot for Native students, Wabanaki and non-Wabanaki. Native Studies 
is an academic unit that actually majority-wise has non-native students taking the courses. So some of the issues there were logistical in that when, when students would come together, we'd have some native students who'd come and say, well, I thought this was a place we could come. And then we had some non-native students who were in native studies who would come and say, well, this is a place where I thought I could come and hang out with some native students and learn a little bit more. But, you know, you don't always want to be teaching about yourself. You, you want to basically have a place to go where you can relax. We, so the synergy that we're trying to create in this new institution, in this new setup, in this new, in this new management is to be able to have that be conducive to all learning uh, because we have native students in a non-native learning situation and then we have non-native students in a native learning situation. So we don't want to continue on with learned helplessness. We don't want to keep teaching them how to be helpless, native students. Uh, we don't also want uh, our native students and non-native students to be trying to developing what they're not interested in, what they're not good at. We want to have them, you know, see, look, the way the education system is set up now is we, we test students, we find out what they're good at, we find out what they're not good at, and we cast aside what they're good at and we try to develop what they're not good at. And that, that, that causes a deficit in, in learning and contribution. So what we want to do is we want to bring that together and create synergies within those communities, non-native and native, that would assist each other and teach us and them how to work together, how to, how to become uh, a cohesive environment. And this is all based on, you know, really on, on teaching about who we are, based on similar, similar uh, circumstance, which is LD291, which you, uh, Bill, you, you brought forward in, in 2001. And uh, that was to create a learning environment where people understood us as a people and as a government and as a as a uh, as a citizenship to this to this land, um, and and to help them understand so that they wouldn't be making judgments on us based on what the history books say, but instead based on what they learned. Right now. This is, uh, I think this next piece that we're going to talk about is going to be really important to Native students. Now, there's been some changes in the waiver program. And, John, if you want to uh, talk about that a little bit. Yeah. <clears throat> well, and again, this goes, you know, Darren can chime in any time. Because uh, even though he's been only here since 2009, he's had the, 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 the leadership in the crash course of what the program was about. And, and I don't think even after 10 years, I can, I can continue, continue to think that I know everything about it. Um, because when Darren came in to the system, it was good to have him because he has a very unique perspective that's definitely helpful. But <clears throat> what we had to do was, I was given the task of every year, okay, since 1985, the University of Maine in Orono has seen a budget reduction continuously. Never in that 85 to now, 01, has, have we got a budget increase. It's been uh, a budget decrease every single year. And you can't go unaffected by, by something like that. Nobody can. Departments can't. It, it's been in the media. It's, it's well out there. So what we had to do was look at, really, the waiver 
and oh, the Native American waiver is not necessarily a free ride for Native students. They have to get accepted into the institutions. They have to maintain GPAs. They they have to get to school. They have to take their tests. They have to uh, be in every way a a student who's successful if they want to continue within the educational system that we offer. So what we did was the program since the late 70s, 77 actually, started to cater to all Native uh, people in the United States and Canada who were federal, federal, state, or provincially recognized tribes, sovereign nations, and, and, and to welcome them into our program. And they didn't even have to be citizens of the state of Maine. Since then, we decided that we really needed to bring it back to our roots. In a lot of ways, a lot of programs in this government United States and statewide, are really looking at streamlining and what was the original intent and how can it, the original intent still be carried out in today's settings. So what we did was we streamlined the program so that it caters to Wabanaki people and the direct descendants who are non-tribally recognized uh, people, I guess, uh, who are not on a roll, but they have a parent or a grandparent who is on a federal state uh, census list. And so we really, we basically what we did was we focused back on the Wabanaki people and, and, and any natives who, are, who have citizenship in Maine that are members of any other tribe, but they're still Maine citizens. For example, you could have a a seminal native person who's lived in Maine his or her whole life, but they're a tribal member of a seminal nation, but they're living in Maine. They'd be eligible for our program because they were here for, for a long time, longer than a year for non-educational purposes. So if anybody establishes residency in Maine, becomes a taxpayer and a citizen of Maine, and they're a member of another tribe that's not a Wabanaki tribe, in other words, not Penobscot, Passamaquoddy, Micmac, or Malisee in the state of Maine, then they could be eligible for the program. So we really focused down on that. And in the, in the, in the um, I guess the, 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 uh, the, the payoff was uh, for the University of Maine system is that it reduced the waiver pool by, uh, it's, it's a phase out. So it's probably going to take a few years, but 500 to $700,000 within the program a year uh, over time because everybody who's in the program now who uh, won't be served, populations won't be served in the future, can finish their current degree. So we, the UMaine system has really put a lot of effort behind that, and the current chancellor has uh, really supported the recommendations that came out of that committee, and that committee was put together by the tribes, the four tribes of, of the state of Maine, the five villages, and the UMaine system office with its appointees and designees from the other campuses because we really want to maintain a consistency in the way that all seven campuses operate within this particular waiver. Keep in mind that the Native American waiver is one of about 17 waiver programs in the UMaine system. And the way it's reported in the UMaine system in the financial end is reported differently than any other waiver program. And uh, it, it tends to be more out there and look, look like more than it really is. But within those programs that uh, that do exist in the waiver programs, the support there is is uh, is 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 very well 
maintained, but the population served in those waiver programs is a lot less than the population served for the native communities. Now, now when you talk about waiver, that what does that specifically cover? That covers tuition and s mandatory fees at, at the campuses. That's it, tuition and fees? Yes. Anything else uh, is, is going to be, is, you know, essentially coming out of the student's pocket or family's pockets or somehow in the future, whether, whether it's through loans, uh, the student will have to be, pay, they're responsible for their books, their parking passes, uh, anything that they might need for uh, equipment. They're responsible for that. And non-mandatory university fees, in other words, class fees or course fees that are not covered as mandatory university fees. Now, room and board, uh, that's, a, that's the same thing. The, 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 what's happening and what's, what's going to continue to happen here, here is that students who are living in a dormitory that are under the waiver program will be basically responsible for some portion of their room and board. Not everybody is responsible for their room and board. And out of the 500 students that we have in the UMaine system, overall, we only have about 120 that are actually in dorms. The rest commute. And uh, so it's a, it's a very uh, web-like structure, which is really hard to explain because, again, on radio you can't show a chart or, or an organizational structure, but it definitely... So, so I, I guess I, I want to ask, mm -hmm. you know, when you, when you talk about the waiver program, now, in the past, Native students have, have uh, really thought that they would, would get a tuition and also room and board. So the waiver program only covers tuition? Is there a separate program for room and board? Room and board is, is, is not, a, a, it's not an entitlement program. It's up to the universities, up to the campuses, whether or not they want to offer oh, the room and board. Okay, so it's most likely that let's say Orono has a policy on room and board. Yeah. Right? And then uh, Farmington or Southern Maine would, may have different policies on room and board. At are those all different or are they going to be uni uniform? No, they are different now in how they're funded. They're going to be uniform effective next year, this next ac academic year. This uh, coming or? Not, not starting in, in September, but uh, basically September 12th, uh, next academic year, a year from now, uh, they will be uh, basically responsible. Basically what happens is when you get a financial aid package, you get this letter that says you have an expected family contribution. Whatever your expected family contribution is going to be required to be is what you're going to be required to pay. So that means that our more needy students are going to be assisted in their room and board if they decide to live on campus. The students who are not as needy financially, in other words, their parents have an income that, that probably could sustain you know, some level of support within their room and board, will be able to uh, receive less funding. <laughs> that doesn't, that's not a privilege, I guess, but, but they would get less funding for their room and board, and that funding would go uh, differently. And, and, and now, that would be across the board, keeping in mind that different campuses had different room rates. And University of Maine Augusta doesn't have any housing at all. So the different room rates on the different campuses require a different amount of funding. So everybody is going to have the same formula they follow, but every campus still has a different expected uh, income that they need to create and generate for their size of the campus.
Okay, so, and this will kick <clears throat> in in uh, 2012. Right? Yeah, that's correct. Just to add, uh, John, the changes in the room and board uh, scholarship, again, which, you know, um, maybe about 20%, as you, as you pointed out, of the students uh, take advantage of that scholarship program. I, I think the name of it will change to some sort of grant um, in recognition that it's uh, need more need-based. But um, the way it's changing and, and sort of the, the energy um, that, that um, it provides the thrust of those changes c came from this really deliberative process between the University of Maine system, John alluded to it, between the University of Maine system and the, tr and the tribal nations that all had representatives. And one of the things, I in fact, uh, some of the, the neediest students uh, financially will actually get um, more aid uh, with the scholarship program as it changes. Um, one of the things that uh, was brought to the table was that some of the students who say they, they're from Pleasant Point and they're in, at the University of Southern Maine, okay, so going from Eastport area down to Portland, you know, the things that were covered were things like, yeah, their, their room and board was covered, their, um, their tuition was covered, you know, maybe depending on all, all their eligibilities, but they didn't have money to, say, buy books or travel back and forth to home. Uh, so, in fact, a student who has a lot of financial need would actually get some money um, from their uh, from their sort of their other federal aid that they're getting to go to school. They would actually get that in pocket to cover these other expenses that had previously never been change that in order the scholarship the, the room and board scholarship would just eat up all their federal aid before um, kicking in so we we feel like that the 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 students with the most financial need um, are actually going to benefit from these changes uh, and I think that's a really important thing because I think it wasn't in terms of the overall cost savings I think there might be some cost savings so the way that we've redone this scholarship program but in essence, and this is really coming from the tribes, is that they were worried about, you know, those students who are kind of financially teetering on the edge, not getting those incidental costs covered, and that could really make or break a particular family um, who want their children to go to to go to college. So uh, I feel very good about that, and I think that the um, the, the the tribes and the in the system really work together to think through where we weren't punishing the people who had needed the most, you know, or we weren't punishing, you know, we were actually trying to help the people who need the most help financially. And um, I believe also the tribes are contributing through their own um, educational uh, departments a bit towards these uh, fees and uh, other expenses. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And if, if the tribes have been really uh, generous with their tribal citizens on, on how they would handle any of those costs that are not covered by us. And so uh, students are, you know, are assisted by their communities to be successful in that, in that well, realm too. And this is not unlike any other waiver program that exists. So I guess um, if you're looking at sort of like the portal where the students come into this waiver program, how does that work? I mean, who, where do they apply to? They, they basically will send their application to the Wabanaki Center. And uh, even though the Wabanaki Center is hosting this uh, program for the system and, and, and the, they offer part of my time, to, the Wabanaki Center offers part of my time to collect this information and for me to do uh, approvals of uh, applications. 
or denials, depending on the, the uh, information submitted. But they send it right to us, and we get it and uh, process it and, and get back to the student, potential student. They have to be a student first. They have to be accepted as a student before I can even process an application, whether or not, um, you know, to whether or not they're eligible for our program, because you can't be eligible for a waiver program if you're not a student. So. And that's regardless of what campus, what university. So even if Correct. it's a USM or Fort Kent or whatever, they go through you. Goes through me. Okay, that's. What's that website? Uh, that website for is, the application. It it's is just a good advertisement. Yeah, yeah. it is a www n-a-p-s dot u-m-a-i-n-e dot e-d-u and uh, that is basically www.nateamericanprograms dot u-m-a-i-n-e dot e-d-u and that's where all our information lies. Now is there, is there a phone number they can call? To they can. They can call uh, in obviously an area code of the state of Maine which is the same uh, and 581-1417 5811417 and we can answer any question that they can't get answered on the website and uh, we do talk a lot with the tribes every tribal education coordinator is in contact with us and and potential students who are out there listening they could contact us via either email on our website or give us a shout now what's your email address you didn't mention that you've got the site but uh, what's well the email that's, address? that's the thing too we don't have a particular one email address yet uh, so um, they can get our contact information off our website as well, and Professor Ranko and myself, uh, who are, and then uh, Dr. Smith and Dr. Newman, who are also in Native Studies, can, uh, the, all the contact information can be found through, through that, through links. Okay. Do you have anything more to say, Darren? I do. Um, <laughs> In one of the key uh, ideas is also in terms of the reorganization beyond the idea of student development, treating Native students as scholars and thinking about that in connection to their own Native communities is the idea of this collaborative research, which those are clearly, um, you can see the connection, you know, that we're, um, one of the things I've been trying to do is build up a kind of um, repertoire of like uh, uh research partnerships and, and research projects that um, directly benefit Native communities. So, you know, I teach this class called Who Owns Native Cultures that goes over the sort of unfortunate history of research within Native communities where things were often extracted, but nothing was left behind. Native people didn't benefit from that research. It was always to benefit others. Um, so there are ways in terms of working collaboratively asking questions like, well, what do you want to know? I mean, it's as simple as that, but that's really out of the, uh, it's not squarely within the culture of of um, university researchers often. But like I said, universities are changing and they're actually trying to have this public engagement more directly. Yeah. You know, that sort of reminds me, you know, in, at the, in the university system in the state of Maine, we have a number of policy uh, centers in those universities. You have the Muskie Center, you have the Margaret J. Smith Center, the Mitchell Center, and those all do research and they all do policy uh, development for the state. And I always, I've often thought, in fact, I wrote a little white paper about why can't the tribes, as, you know, uh, tribal communities get together and, and have a, a, a policy center. And it sounds like that's probably what you're talking about, that sort of research that develops uh, policy for uh, different 
tribes and their interests and their, their issues. Yeah, that that is the idea. I mean, that's a long term. I mean, you know, having our own right. <laughs> like that kind of center, but um, it's n- intellectually that's the thrust that that really is going to. So I have a project. It's funded through the National Science Foundation EPSCOR program, which um, right now at the University of Maine, it's it's run through the uh, Mitchell Center, and it's called the Sustainable uh, Sustainable Solutions Initiative, and that's um, funding a research project that um, is on the Emerald Ash Borer. Uh, and r- really early on, I tried to challenge, I think, NSF, the University Mitchell Center. And for us, we have the Maine Indian Basket Makers Alliance, not as a kind of partner, but they're actually a principal investigator. They're inside. You know, they, universities and researchers like to think like, well, we're the researchers, and then we have these external people who are stakeholders in our research. Um, and I think that that kind of thinking continues the sort of us and them. We're the keepers of knowledge. They're the maybe they're beneficiaries. We want to consult them. Um, I don't think of it that way as a native scholar. You know that we knowledge exists within all of us as native people, and it's not just located in that university or whatever. And that university people are also stakeholders in the state who have a really particular set of interests. So we've been really trying to break down those walls through this project where we've been bringing to be together basket makers, tribal governments, state and federal governments, other um, people in industry and forestry to have a plan in place to work together to develop some research um, interests that would help us manage for the arrival, the potential arrival of this really devastating uh, invasive insect that will kill all the ash trees in the state mm. potentially. No, I think we're going to have a program on that at some point because yeah. that's, that's going to be devastating to uh, the basket making industry. Yeah, absolutely. But that's an example, you know, to really drive that home, that's an example of where working together, it was a research project that came out of Native people and Native communities of their interests as opposed to someone thinking in their office and uh, at a university somewhere like, well, I think we should study this. I mean, that that collaboration, I think, is a real critical key. And for our students to see that, that, that these people are important stakeholders, not not just important stakeholders, but kind of purveyors of their own knowledge and their own research questions is something we can model for our students. Okay, and on that note, we're going to end. Thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Donna Loring, and you've been listening to Wabanaki Windows. The music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from his CD, Dreamwalk. I want to thank my special guest, Professor Darren Ranko, Uh, for agreeing to be on the show, as well as John Bear Mitchell uh, from the University of Maine, Orono. Thank you. See you again next month for another Webinacki Windows.